amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some difficult topics sometimes. And today, I think it's not as difficult as it is intriguing. We're talking about bystanders and um, bystander intervention. I don't particularly like that term. Um, I, I, I coined a term with one of our previous guests, Alan, and I called it peripheral participants. <laughs> You're free to use that if that rings your bell. Uh, but we're talking about bystanders and how bystanders behave and what they can do and how they feel about doing it when they see violence. And uh, we have an expert with us. Dr. Alan Berkowitz is an independent uh, uh, consultant. He works with colleges, universities, public health agencies, communities. He designs programs that help address health and social justice issues. And uh, you, Dr. Uh, Berkowitz, welcome, and I will call you Alan because you gave me permission to do that. So welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be part of this great show. Oh, well, thank you. So why bystander behavior? You know, all our lives we've heard, you know, don't interfere, don't get involved, call the police, call the authorities. Isn't when when we encourage bystanders to do to take some sort of action, aren't we going counter to that advice? And should we be? Well, I would say if we were given that advice, then there are times when we should go counter to it. And there are many times when something inside of us, you know, you could call it your conscience, you could call it your heart, you could call it your superego, your soul, depending on what you believe, but whatever you believe, there's many times when something inside of us feels that something is wrong and feels that we should do something. And when we don't do something, we regret it. When you work on this issue, you find that many people will come up to you and say, 30 years ago this happened and I've never forgiven myself. So it's not only about um, doing the right thing and making the world a better place, which it is, it's also about living up to who we want to be as human beings and fulfilling um, our potential. So, um, so on the other hand, sometimes it may be true that we should not interfere and there may be reasons for not getting involved. And that is really all part of the calculus that we'll be discussing today, which is when do you get involved, how do you get involved, and when maybe do you decide to not get involved. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we have our, our kind of gut instinct. Um, we might see a child that we question whether or, or not, 
you know, the parent is just is just too frazzled to behave appropriately in the grocery store or something. And yet a part of us thinks, well, you know, we've all been there and, you know, I don't, and, and we don't really know how to go about it anyway. On the other hand, if I were walking down a dark street and I saw somebody being mugged with a gun, I'd probably hide behind the wall and search for my cell phone to call the authorities. So when we talk about bystanders' behavior, we're talking about some really varied types of intervention that could occur and the wisdom of doing it, right? Right, exactly. And that's why even a so-called expert such as myself can't say this is what you have to do or this is what you should do. What, what I can say is don't disregard your gut instincts. Your gut instincts are telling you something. Your gut its instincts are based on a human nervous system that has, has cent- centuries of evolution to sense danger and problems. And as I said, if you believe then we're more than a nervous system, you have a conscience or we have values, we have a, something, a heart, something within us that knows right from wrong. So the question then becomes, what do I do and how? And in the supermarket, that example you gave is very, very common. Everyone practically can think of a time they were in a public place where a parent behaved in a way that seemed inappropriate towards the children. You can just ask, say, is everything okay? Or you can say, oh, I remember those days. Or if the person is standing in front of that dry cereal, you can say, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you, my my son, my daughter loves Wheaties. In other words, once we think through more carefully about what it means to intervene, it doesn't mean being confrontational. It doesn't mean putting yourself in danger. It means doing something rather than nothing and doing something that you feel comfortable with and sometimes not doing anything. So maybe after you ran and hide... <laughs> in the dark alley, now that we have cell phones, you can call 911. Um, So I think what we want to accomplish today is for our listeners to feel that they have a lot more freedom to do something and that there are ways of doing something that they did not consider that are safe, comfortable, and positive. So if I'm, uh, you, you, it's interesting, you know, to keep up with this grocery store analogy. Um, I've got two anecdotes that I wanted to run by you. One is good, I good. found I, I'm not a huge intervener, but I found uh, in the grocery store um, uh, one time uh, a mother who was just so frazzled, and I saw her slap her child's hand. Now I got to tell you, I don't see that as call the police activity. On the other hand, it's indicative that wow, you know, uh, she's slapping the kid's hands pretty hard and, you know, maybe this is something, you know, the, And but what do you do, blah, blah, blah. And I just went up to her, uh, you know, I was near her and I just smiled and I said, it's so hard, isn't it, at this stage? And, I mean, it was like a switch went off. This woman just diffused immediately. So that's exactly the point because there's a part of this woman that doesn't like what she's doing either. There's a part of her that wants to discipline her child in a different way. But because she feels overwhelmed and out of control and frazzled, that part of her is weaker than the part of her that overreacts. 
and by stepping in in the way you did, which was non-confrontational and empathic and non-blaming and still aware of the child's safety because you don't want to do anything that would provoke the parent more and that relates to domestic violence and other things. Because you did all those things, you diffuse the situation and in the presence of another where the mother knows that she's being seen and in the presence of her conscience where she feels bad that she's reacting in this way to her child, you opened a door for her and once you open that door, something dissolved and let's say she could be her better self. So so that would be um, an example of a powerful intervention that I would call an indirect intervention because you're not confronting her, you're not embarrassing her, you're not saying something strong. You're just kind of like sliding over into the situation in a gentle way. And in many, many of the everyday situations that bother us, an indirect intervention can be very effective, and in other times we need to be more strong or confrontational. But when we talk about violence, particularly violence against women, the men who are violent are the minority, but the culture that they live in, um, which includes sexual harassment and problematic language, um, includes the behavior of many, many more men. So men like myself, our whole lives were bystanders to uncomfortable language about women and we don't know what to do or say. And your your example reminds us that we can do or say something without embarrassing the other person, without creating an uncomfortable situation, without ruining a good time. Those are all the things that keep people from doing something. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about um, men in particular and their reaction uh, if they observe or are, are peripheral participants in a in a, in a violent or um, uncomfortable situation. But first, you wrote a book, and, and it's actually kind of a nice book. It's called Responsibility, A Complete Guide to Bystander Intervention. Um, where can people get this book if they want it? So um, it's, it's available through lulu.com. Um, which is an online bookstore, and if you just put in my name in the title, that will come up. If anyone is available in bulk purchases, they can get it from me, and it's also listed on my website, so they can you can get to the book through allenberkowitz.com. Okay, and in your book, you outline uh, pretty clearly about um, different um, um, considerations when we're talking about bystander behavior, not just bystander intervention, but also bystander behavior. And you talk about stages of bystander behavior. Could we address that a little bit? Oh, and sure. before you do that, I'm going to jump in here. If you'd like to join our conversation, our chat room is open, and we also have the call line open, and that uh, guest call-in number is 646-378-0433. Three seven eight zero four three zero. Okay, let's talk about stages of bystander behavior. What does that mean? So what that means is that, like many things in life, you go through a development. There are steps that take you from one place to another. And in the case of um, peripheral observers, as you put it, bystanders, 
um, there's extensive social science research that shows that people go through stages that begin with noticing something and that hopefully end with doing something. So let's take this show. This show exists because you and other people have a very legitimate concern about um, violence, gender disparities, sexism, et cetera, et cetera. This show is, is an example of noticing the event, but 40 years ago we didn't have shows like this. So there's an evolution in the social consciousness, and we notice things that we didn't notice before. So maybe someone uses a word about a certain group, and that bothers you, but 10 years ago you didn't know that that wasn't an okay word. So the first step is that you have to notice something. And um, when we talk about gender disparities, now we have huge amounts of evidence, you know, actual evidence that these disparities exist and that we are, are becoming more conscious of them. We're noticing them. After you notice it, you have to um, decide if it's a problem. Maybe five years ago when someone used that word, you would think, oh, well, they didn't mean anything, or that's just an expression. And you kind of notice it, but you didn't attach significance to it in a way that it was problematic. So you notice the event, you interpret it as a problem. We are here because you and I both are doing that. Our listeners are probably listening because they also are aware of the issue and interpret it as a problem. And then you have to feel responsible for doing it. That's a very common barrier because many times people will notice something and they will think it's not my responsibility, it's not my problem, someone else will say something. Um, maybe, Heather, if you're the type of person that always says something, then in your presence I won't say anything because I think, well, Heather's probably going to say something. So I, I, in a way I, I don't take my own responsibility because I, I assume that you're going to be the activist who's going to say something. Um, and the final stage is to know what to do and how to do it, and that's what we've been talking about. So even if we don't put labels on these stages, they all uh, represent a natural progression that we go through from not being aware to being aware to identifying the, the problem and to taking responsibility, and then finally to figuring out what to do and you can go, you can be in one of those stages and get stuck and not go to the next. So part of our job is to help people shift up to the next stage and finally get to the point where something happens, it bothers you, you do something, and you feel good about it. And without belaboring it, your, your supermarket example was a great example of you went through those stages and you did something that was not only effective, but that you felt good about and that probably was meaningful for the child and the parent. One of the things that triggers, you know, my questioning is, um, have, you, are you, have you heard the term virtue signaling? No, you'll have to explain that to me. Okay, I love this terminology. Um, I have been struck over several years by the fact, uh, and, and uh, I'll use the example of um, funerals. When I was younger and people passed away, you might have one or two people stand before the crowd and say, you know, Grandma was this and that and the other thing. 
Now it seems like I go to a funeral and, I mean, there's a lineup of people who want to get up there and talk about their experiences and how much they loved her and how much they're going to miss him and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just comes across as phony to me. I, when my son was in second grade, one of his classmates died from cancer. They knew he was going to die. Um, and, oh, my goodness, this, this group of mothers snapped into action. They organized food, to, you know, that kind of thing, which is wonderful. When the child was in the hospital, my son was the only, I'm the only one who took the kid to see my, you know, my kid to see that kid in the hospital. You know, they played a gentle little game, and you know, I mean, and and it struck me as then when when the boy passed away, these these par- other parents are organizing events. They want to have the children stand in front of the casket and sing. They want to, and and I just thought this is too much. This is this is no longer about this mother's grief. This is about how good I am, and yes, and see how good I am. It's an opportunity uh, to be narcissistic, which is becoming very popular. <laughs> Well, and I think that's culture. exactly what uh, somebody in England uh, uh, several months ago coined the term virtue signaling. And he said that basically what we're doing with all of this behavior is we're not actually being required to do anything important. We're just being required to put some dressing on it and say, see, look how, look how significant, see how virtuous I am. So let's let's break down the situation. First of all, there's a component of the funeral situation that has to do with setting boundaries, which is the family can set certain criterion for who speaks and who doesn't. But without that happening, um, you have all these people displaying their virtue, and in this case, you're the bystander. You notice the event, you interpret it the problem, you want to do something, but you don't know what to do. So let's use this example. Let's say... Let's say I'm the virtue signaler, and I'm I'm giving this great big speech, and you really think I'm being a phony. So so how do you intervene with me? You can say, Alan, um, I didn't know you were so close with the family. <laughs> you could just ask me a question, or you could say, it's interesting that you're you know the family so well because I was at the hospital every week when when he was there with cancer, and I never saw you. In other words. There are ways you can let me know that you know I'm being a phony. And okay, but what would be the purpose of that? What good would it do that I let you know that I know you're a phony? I mean, other than my ego. What, what, what well, well your ego is not valueless. So, first of all, you might feel better that you did that. And sometimes, especially when we're talking about social injustice and we're talking about more harmful behavior, Sometimes telling the other person that you're upset or letting them know it isn't okay is is healing or helpful to you. So we okay. include in our discussion the fact that sometimes it benefits you even though it doesn't benefit the other person. But beyond that, um, if I'm speaking at the funeral with an unconscious motive to show my virtue, and I'm demonstrating my virtue in a certain way, you're letting me know that it didn't work, <laughs> right? My strategy yeah. didn't work because I wanted you to be impressed with me, 
and make a certain conclusion about me, and you're letting me know that it didn't work. So in a very subtle way, it's still effective to let me know that. And if if we lived in a culture where all the the real grievers felt comfortable saying something like that over time, you know, this is a more subtle behavior than than overt violence. But over time, I believe if more people said something more at the time, then the virtue seekers would realize that their strategy isn't working and they would change it. Okay. But and also, let me just let me yeah. make one more comment, which is, let's say you made that comment at the funeral and one of the family members overheard you say that. They might be very grateful to you that you took that on and that you let that person know that um, their their virtue was exaggerated. So even though you're not looking to say something in the presence of a family member, there's there's a secondhand benefit of your intervention when it is appreciated by someone who's, let's say, the target of the intervention, which is in this case the grieving family. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I, that was not the response I expected. So, thank you for that. <laughs> well, I hope it was. I, I hope it was a valuable response. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, and and you know, part of me, I mean, and maybe it's just my Midwest, you know, upbringing, but uh, you know, a part of me thinks that you know, the it's so easy for us to assume grief. That is, I mean, I can be, you know, I, when a public official dies or whatever and you know i mean a princess die or a president is assassinated and you get millions of people just mourning and da, da, da. it's okay to feel bad you can feel bad but you didn't even know that person how can you possibly be mourning that person well in the case of a public figure you're mourning the loss of a symbol or you're mourning the loss of an important element of our common life but in the case of a funeral you're mourning a very specific person that you that is a, a concrete loss in your life. Now, let's take the situation a little further. Let's say that I gave a speech that you felt was virtue-seeking, and you made a comment to me, and you didn't know that my child was best friends with the boy who died from cancer, so, or that I had some significant relationship that was unknown to you. So when you say to me, well, Alan, I, I, that was a really beautiful speech, but I didn't realize you knew the family so well, I could say, well, yes, as a matter of fact, and I can give you the answer. So in that case, you're intervening without knowing that your intervention is unwarranted. Yeah. And because you intervene in a gentle, indirect way, you give me the chance to give you the correct information without creating an uncomfortable situation. Hmm. When and and I think this is kind of what you're talking about why in your book about why people don't intervene, and I think that that uh, it's a risk. It's a risk to intervene. It's a risk that you have misinterpreted something, that you're poking your nose in something that you that you don't understand and that you don't have the background in. Why else don't people intervene? Well, first of all, the goal is to minimize the risk, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and it includes physical risk. Um, you know, you mentioned your Midwestern background. 
when people live in a small town and they have very frequent everyday interactions, so maybe our children go to school together, maybe the car dealer that I want to buy a car from goes to my my church or my synagogue or my mosque, there's many ways in which you don't want to upset the harmony of everyday uh, relationships, and so one of, that's one of the risks. So th- once again, now we're talking about um, decades of social science research that people do not intervene, one, because they think someone else will intervene. That's called diffusion of, in, of, of responsibility. So if you always intervene, I don't intervene because I think you will intervene. Another one is fear of embarrassment, which is you might embarrass yourself or the other person, which is very legitimate. We, we're not here to embarrass other people. It wouldn't have been effective for you to embarrass the person in the supermarket, and it wouldn't wouldn't be appropriate to try and embarrass the virtue seeker. So there's a, um, a diffusion of responsibility. There's a fear of embarrassment. There's a fear of harm, right? Like you don't want maybe maybe you're my boss and I'm, I, I want to get a promotion or I want to get a raise or I don't want to lose my job. There's also um, a more recent finding that there's the incorrect assumption that other people aren't upset. And this will become very important in our discussion of men's role in ending violence against women because many of the remarks that some men make that are upsetting to other men, the other men don't realize that they're actually in the majority and that most people didn't like that remark. So when there's a hidden social discomfort and you don't perceive it, you might not um, do something because you think it doesn't bother other people. Right. Well, and I might have left one out, but I think that's the way. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if we're a bystander and we see some sort of behavior that we do not necessarily find comfortable or um, uh, that we do not approve of um, uh, or that we think might be harmful to someone else, we go through these stages where we tell ourselves, well, is it my business or is it all the way up to am I going to be hurt if I intervene? Uh-huh. Exactly. What, and and, and how do we make, I mean, is there a training for how we make those decisions? Well, yes and no. Um, and also let's, let's consider the fact that you might intervene, you might, you might be inappropriate in your concern for me. Like maybe... Um, I'm, I'm behaving in a way that disturbs you, but it's a valued decision. And, you know, you tell me, well, you're going to pray for me or you're going to say something. And I say, well, I don't need your prayers, Heather, because I'm fine with the way I am. So it doesn't mean that we're always right, but it means mm-hmm. that we try and act on our concern and see what happens. So um, your listeners to this show may not know that last week in your last show, you interviewed Dorothy Edwards from the Green Dot Program. And one of the recent historical developments that that is very positive is that there are now a a number of package trainings programs that teach people bystander intervention skills that you can bring to your school or community or institution. There are also people like myself who tailor programs to um, the unique culture of an individual school or environment. There are books like my book and other books. So you can 
um, you can listen to the show. You can do many things to move yourself through those stages, including to take advantage of a more formalized training package that helps you go through the steps. Although I would say that this is a process. This is a process of cultural change, and um, it doesn't always go smoothly. So, for instance, many people go through a training and they develop more motivation to intervene, but they still don't know how to intervene effectively. The research shows that when people go through these trainings, they intervene more for a while and then they stop. So we still haven't totally figured out how to get people through all the stages and how to stay there. And it may it may need more ongoing support. You know, maybe you intervene in the supermarket and you feel bad about it and you need to have someone to talk to to say, I really felt I should have done something, but when I said to that mother, she just got more upset and I was afraid she was going to hit her kid again. And what should I have done differently? So you need a support system to help you go, oh, okay, that would have done. Next time I'm going to do that. And a lot of the package bystander programs, which are very good getting you started, might not offer that ongoing support to help you, let's say, manage the bumps in the road. Well, and we also, I'm I'm, again going back to the grocery store, but, you know, (laughs) I need to invest on a new scale. I'm spending so much time in the grocery store. Um, But there's also, I mean, I have had uh, friends tell me um, that one friend in particular, she was in the grocery store. Her daughter uh, was in the riding in the cart, and her daughter kept taking her mother's purse and dumping it on the floor. The third time, you know, the first time, the mother picked up the stuff, told the little girl no, and put it uh, toward the back of the cart. Well, the mother turned to reach for something, and the girl was able to grab the purse, and she dumped it again. So, again, this time the mother hung it off of the the handlebar so that it was closer to her, and again told the daughter no, and that was naughty. And, again, the little girl grabbed the purse and dumped it. I mean, this was a great game, right? And, And the mother slapped the little girl's fingers. She didn't, you know, it didn't leave a mark. It didn't, you know, she she slapped her fingers and said no. And the girl was about two, I think, you know, not not at the age where you can actually reason significantly with a child. And, oh, my gosh, you would have thought that she had just taken out a bullwhip and gone after that baby. I mean, people in the grocery store, there were two people in particular that followed her around, and one person said to her, well, why don't you just beat her up? That'll teach her, you know. And my friend was just, I mean, she was at the point where she just left her groceries and left the store. And I was thinking, that's overkill. That really was overkill. What was overkill? Um, yeah. That, that no, no, people, say what, 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 that people followed her. So Yeah, and, and harangued her for a, 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 basically a tap on the little girl's fingers. Now, well, they might not her. Approved of that, but that I don't think that you would find any um, uh, court of law that says that you know tapping your kids' fingers when they're doing something naughty is necessarily mean and horrible and, and abusive. And yet well, she was just vilified for that. So I would say two things. One is sometimes when we notice the event and interpret it as a problem, the pendulum swings too far in the other direction, and we overreact. And for example the discussion of political correctness on college campuses now and the issue of free speech. 
and the issue of warning people that something might upset them, right? There's a there's a correction happening in that discussion, and so in the in your friend's example, people are are aware of the the issue of child abuse, right? They're noticing it. They want to do something. And now maybe some people have become oversensitive and they're overreacting. But it's part of the process of social change where the pendulum swings back and forth and eventually it finds the healthy middle. So even though your friend is a victim of other people's overzealousness, the fact that people are noticing child abuse and wanting to do something is good but now we need to calibrate it, and and maybe maybe if instead that person had gone over and said, "Is everything okay?" or what did you whatever you, what you had said in that incident? Like I remember those days, and you said you can't, and then your friend said you can't believe it. My daughter just dumped my purse out on the floor four times, and this is how I'm trying to get her to not do it. You see what I'm saying? There's a way of when you don't have enough information, but you want to do something. There's a way of intervening that allows you to get the information without overreacting. Or when the person overreacted to your friend, I mean, your friend wouldn't be calm enough to do this, but in theory your friend could say, well, probably you didn't see her dump my purse out five times, and if you had, you might understand why I tapped her hand. Yeah. 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 Okay. So... um, (laughs) You know, we just risk overzealousness in order to accomplish our healthy middle, as you called it. Right, and we we want to minimize it, but we know that it happens. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We take it into Um, account that overzealousness happens when the society goes through a correction. Okay, all right. Okay, so let's talk about men. Wait, could I just say one more thing? Sorry, I want to just jump in because I thought of something. Um, okay, what often happens is people, you, people, when the overzealousness happens, people say, well, we should have never, we, pe- people overreact to the overzealousness and try and minimize the initial problem that led to the overzealousness, and that's not correct either. So even though some people overreacted to your friend in the supermarket, there still is a real problem of child abuse, and we still really need to do something about it. But some people will minimize it. Like in the whole gender discussion, there's a men's rights, what's called the men's rights movement, that is really taking the issue to a negative extreme and trying to minimize the original problem. Yes, yes, they're doing it quite slickly too. Right, right. And maybe... Maybe there's a few a few court cases where a father was unfairly denied custody or something with his children, but that doesn't mean that the social effort to correct the imbalance that pre-exists is wrong. You know, like none of these things are simple. <laughs> no. It's good for us to have an hour because we're talking about very complicated things that actually don't have simple answers or solutions. No, okay, so they don't. Gonna move I mean, they on. really don't. And there's so much, you know, I mean, we we like things to be neat and tidy. We like things to be right and wrong. We, But the fact is there's so many degrees in the middle. And, you know, it, it, it and when you're talking about bystander intervention where it requires some level of judgment, um, you know, I, I, I can see where it's a, it's a huge issue. Um, so let's talk about men's behavior specifically. Now, where 
I, and people are probably tired of me hearing this, but remember when the Steubenville football player rape thing went on a couple years ago? Um, we did a show on that, and I listened to the tape. You know, pretty disgusting tape, but I listened to it. And at some point, when these young men are are sexually abusing this girl who is unconscious, all of a sudden, in the back, you never see this boy, but you hear this teenage boy say, come on, guys, what if this was your sister? That's it. They totally ignore him, and he never says another word. But I was so struck by this young man's voice. Imagine being a male teenager football player in this group where all of this stuff is going on and having the nerve to actually come out and say that. I was so struck by that. I, I just wish somebody would track that boy down and let him know that he did right, even though it didn't change the situation. What he did was right. And maybe he could have done more, but you know what? In the circumstances, would I have done more? I don't know. Using that scenario... Use- Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, using that scenario, let's talk about men and men's behaviors as bystanders. Sure, that's a great scenario. So um, in the title of our um, program, Social Norms and Bystander Intervention, in this case we're talking about what was the social norm in that group of boys who engage in that behavior? And did they all actually feel okay with what they were doing? One boy well, clearly spoke one of them on the, didn't. One did. You know. Um, yeah. So in the in the description of our conversation, you asked the question: Do men always feel good about standing up to prevent violence? And I would answer the question by saying, most men feel bad about not standing up to violence, but don't know that other men feel the same way. So in this case, one boy spoke up, but I don't. Do you remember approximately how many boys were involved in the event? Oh, it was maybe half a dozen. Okay, so let's say there's six boys, and let's say one or two boys are the activist perpetrators who are really goading on the group and really promoting this which is usually the case in gangs. The research shows that most gangs have a ringleader and the ringleader has like a sidekick. So let's say that two of those six boys were aggressively promoting the, this, the sexual assault, the gang rape. One boy we know was actively uncomfortable, so that leaves three. It's very possible that the other three didn't really like what was going on but they didn't know that they were um, in the majority. They didn't know that other boys also didn't agree, and they didn't want to take the risk of losing their membership in the group, of losing the respect of the other boys, of being um, part of the quote-unquote team. So the social dynamics of group behavior, in particular men's or boys' behavior, is such that many boys and men don't know that other boys and men share their discomfort. And there's a silent majority that thinks it's a minority. And on the other hand, there's a minority, in this case the ringleader and his um, sidekick, 
there's a minority who think they're the majority. And in the case of male behavior, um, because we live in a world that treats men and women differently, one of the things that happens in boy and male culture is that boys and men care very, very much about what other boys and men think of them, and they want to be seen as the group. So the power of group belonging and group acceptance takes on a huge weight, and and boys and men will do things that go against their inner values and their inner conscience in order to not jeopardize their participation in the group. And so it's very possible that in the Steubenville scenario, there was a majority of boys who were uncomfortable but did not have the courage to, to do anything and did not know that the others um, were on their side. Mm-hmm. Okay. And th- so what do we do about that? But before right, you so- answer that question, <laughs> I have a caller on the line. So let's go to our right. caller. Perfect. Okay. Caller, are you there? Hi, my name is uh, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. Where are you calling from? The center of the universe. That's what they call Ashland, Virginia. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm going to be in Roanoke in another month or so, so I'm going to oh, chance wow. to see you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, Hugh. Do you have a question for Alan? I just turned on to your show. I don't know what you're discussing, but uh, I'm actually a global visionary. I'm working on transforming global economics, education, politics, religion, and more. I don't know if you're covering those things in your show. Well, no, we're not, actually. We're talking about bystander intervention. And in particular, well, right now, we're talking about... Well, that covers a, a, a big part of it because uh, everybody has to take personal responsibility in their life. And if you see something that uh, you can help someone, you should do that. Uh, just that's what we're well, talking about. Well, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. Do you have a question for Alan? Do you have a question about bystander intervention, Hugh? Yes. Uh, I don't know if he has put out there the blessings that can be had by just even engaging somebody that you might think could use some help, such as uh, okay. somebody that right. might have disabilities that you can assist them and just at okay. least ask them. Well, okay, Hugh, I'm going to give the phone over to to Alan, the microphone over to Alan, so that he can talk about that. What about are the benefits? What are the benefits? I think you brought up a good point. Uh, of bystander intervention, Alan? So we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the show. There's internal and there's external benefits. So if someone comes up to me in a workshop and says, you know, 30 years ago when I was in college, somebody did this and I wanted to do something and I didn't and I've never forgiven myself, that person is living with um, a discomfort. And If that person, when they were in college 30 years ago, had gone to a bystander intervention workshop and learned how to intervene effectively and go through the stages, that person would not have been living with this discomfort for 30 years. So as Hugh put it, you can say that's a blessing. It's a blessing to to live with yourself in a way that's compatible with your deeper beliefs and values and to not be unhappy with yourself that you didn't act on them. That's one benefit of bystander intervention. When we're talking about social change, um, in this case ending violence against women, then where each little act 
a cruise with all the other little acts, and over time that changes the culture. And what we know from the research on violence against women is that the person who is violent, the perpetrator, is given permission to be violent by the belief that other men agree with what he's doing. So if I think that other men think it's okay for me to have sex with a woman who's passed out, then I'm more likely to do it than if I know that other men who I care about do not approve of that. So the bystander behavior or the bystander intervention will not only interrupt a specific event, it will change the culture that allows the event to take place so that maybe in 5 or 10 or 20 years we won't even have any Steubenvilles because the majority of those boys will know that they have other, the other boys don't agree with it and they will all say something and it will stop. Well, that's ideal, isn't it? That's just exactly <laughs> right. where we would want to be. And that's what, so we're, even if we don't get to a, an ideal world, we get closer to an ideal world. Yeah. And when we get closer so, to an ideal world, we also get closer to our ideal selves. Yeah. So how do, uh, what are we missing? Okay. Um, I brought up kind of a devil's advocate position, which is, you know, you're talking about the internal benefits. I can feel good about myself. I can feel very virtuous. I can feel very righteous that I have intervened and made the world a better place. Um, and if I've indeed done that legitimately, I have made the world a better place. So that's kind of the external thing that you're talking about. How do we know whether we're doing this for ourselves or for someone else? And does it matter? Well, that's a deeper question because um, there's not an easy answer, right? In the funeral example that we discussed earlier, the virtue seekers are let's say they're behaving in an inappropriate and insensitive way, and we know that by intervening with the virtue seeker, um, we're correcting an imbalance. But there's many things in life where we really don't know if what we're doing is the right thing or making the difference that we hope for. So we can only, um, let's say we try and go into the situation with an open mind that includes the possibility that when I say something to your friend in the grocery store who tapped her daughter on the hand, that I could be wrong and that I'm open to the possibility. But for the moment, I feel there's enough reasons to think that I'm right, that I'm willing to try and do something. So this is more of a, a philosophical issue that we can't always assume that we're right, even if we have feel an imperative to do something in a particular situation. And the situation, the, the action in the situation will help us determine if indeed what we did was a good thing or not, and if we want to do something different the next time. Okay. All right. So say we're seeing one of those things, seeing, say we're seeing one of those inter places where we feel that we really should intervene, how do we do it? You talk about options for intervening. What are some of those options? Right. So the options depend on the situation. Um, and um, 
the reason we're having this conversation is you read an article that I wrote in which I described options for responding to a particular situation that was in a, a, a magazine called Voicemail, where a guy was was indecisive in a liquor store, and the clerk said, um, the, the the guy said, too many choices, and the clerk said, wrong time of the month. So let's use that example, right, that to, to illustrate our options. So when the clerk says wrong time of the month, the 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 customer is very upset and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't do anything. So what could he have done? One thing is he could be confrontational. He could say, I'm offended by your comment. I don't appreciate the implication of your remark. I haven't seen you being so decisive. So that's what we call a confrontational response, which is you share your upsetness with the person or you let them know that their behavior isn't okay. Some people want to do that. Some people feel comfortable doing that. Sometimes a situation warrants being confrontational. If you have authority, if you're a teacher, you're walking down the hall, there's something happening in the hall, you need to be confrontational. Let's say you don't want to be confrontational for many, one of many reasons. Maybe there's a power differential. Maybe the person is bigger than you and you don't want to be unsafe. So you could say something indirect. You could say to the clerk, I was under the assumption that haste makes waste, or I'm more interested in having a nice dinner with my friends than in what beer we're drinking, or actually I was so enthralled by the great beer choices that I couldn't decide what do you recommend. So that's what we call an indirect remark, where you do something to break the energy of the situation, and that's what you did in the story you described in the supermarket. You could be a little more confrontational and say, personally, I don't mind being seen as indecisive, even if you're wrong about the reason. Or you could say, my doctor told me that my indecision gene is on my Y chromosome, so that isn't the right explanation. Or you could say, many women I know are more decisive than me all four weeks of the month. So now you're being indirect, but in a little bit of a confrontational way. Now, um, the final thing you could do um, which I wouldn't do in this case. That's my cell phone, which we'll ignore. Yep, that's okay. Um, that happens. <laughs> um, let's say someone who is my friend said that, and it was is not the clerk in the liquor store. I could say, um, gee, it really seems to bother you when men are indecisive. Could you tell me why? And now I could have a conversation with my friend about why he's bothered, like, why does it bother you so much when men act in, in a way that appears indecisive? Now, if we go back to Steubenville, you would never do that in Steubenville. You would need to act. Um, yeah. But in certain situations where there's verbally offensive behavior and someone is upset and you know that person, you could have a conversation with them about their upsetness. So now we have a range of options. We have a confrontation. We have an indirect response, which could be just changing the subject, correcting the assumption of the remark, and we could have the opportunity in some cases to have a conversation with the person. Okay. Some of that seems kind of stilted for the average person to be doing. Um, is, you know, it's, and, again, we go back to this whole issue of how do we learn? How do we learn how to do this stuff? Right. So... We're not encouraging people to be stilted and unnatural. 
we're encouraging people to do something that feels natural to them. Mm-hmm. All these things I just said feel natural to me because I've been doing this for 40 years and I've been thinking about this and I've been teaching other people to do it. On the other hand, anytime you learn something new, it feels stilted. If you're learning to play a musical instrument, it it feels stilted. If you're practicing your lines for a play, it feels stilted. So you have to be willing to go through the stilted phase, but you need to come up with something in the end that feels natural to you, that is very Heather, that is very whoever. But I like that. I'm going to embroider that on a pillow. Find something that is very Heather. <laughs> right. But it doesn't happen overnight. So you try something and it doesn't work, or you say something and it feels stilted, and then you need to figure out something else. And that's why in the research literature we're seeing this drop-off, which is people go to a workshop, they try something, maybe it feels stilted, maybe it didn't work. There isn't another workshop to help them figure out what to do differently, and then the behavior diminishes, which we don't want. We want people to get through the stilted phase. We want people to get through the phase where they tried something that didn't work and get to the point where it feels very natural. So I can tell you that I feel totally comfortable and natural intervening in dozens of situations that I wouldn't have felt comfortable and natural intervening in the past. And very often when I do that, Actually, this is another reward of bystanding behavior. I get positive feedback from the other bystanders, so they give me a thumbs up or they give me the peace sign or they smile at me and they let me know that they were uncomfortable and they didn't say anything and they were glad that I said something. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Um, I mean, I could tell you if we had two hours, I could tell you a million stories. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, uh, um, I think that um, one of the things that you were talking about when you were talking about men and the male environment, we always tend to think of girls in adolescence as being particularly cliquish. But I think that there is, having raised both a son and a daughter, I think that we underestimate, uh, maybe we just don't call it cliquishness with boys, but we underestimate, I think, the pressure that teenage boys are under with their group. And it's not only teenage boys. Um, There was a recent article in the New York Times called How Wall Street Brother Talk Keeps Women Down. And the article was about, in a highly competitive corporate environment, how men talk about women. And we can use the example of CNN just now, where there there was social pressure in that environment to tolerate sexual harassment of women. So the pressure that boys feel to fit in is also pressure that men feel to fit in. Hmm. And we want to reduce that pressure by letting boys and men know that other boys and men don't like that pressure either and don't actually want to fit into what they're being asked to fit into. That's Hmm. part of the key. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, if I'm a mother, how do I teach this to my children? Well, it might be very difficult because your children might not want to listen to you, or at a certain <laughs> age, your ch- your children no, might think my that. my children listen to everything. <laughs> okay, well, they, they can call in now, um, or or your children may think that you don't really know what's going on in their peer group. So you have to be a little subtle. Um, 
if if your child comes back and says, well, everybody at the party was drunk, you say, really? Are you sure? Were there any people who weren't drinking? Were there any people who were drinking who weren't drunk? Or you say, look, I don't want to know any names, but the next time you go to a party, why don't you look around and count the people who are drunk and count the people who aren't drunk and even see if there's people drinking soda out of a beer can. So as a parent, you need to train your child to look at the situation differently and perceive that the way it looks based on the visible behavior is not the truth of the situation based on how people actually feel. Wow, that's true. That's true. Well, and I think that, you know, I mean, we have an, if whatever we want our children to learn, we have an obligation to learn ourselves and practice. Totally. That's my totally. opinion. Um, and so we all need to we all need to go through this process of learning to not be bystanders and practicing ways to intervene and not giving up if it feels stilted or doesn't work in the beginning. Right. But we also have to discriminate. We have to decide whether or not something requires intervention. Yes. Going back and to my friend in the grocery store, you know, I mean, uh, that situation, totally. in my opinion did not require intervention. And I question the motives of the person who was intervening. Was the well, person they might intervening... be virtue seekers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Was that person just, you know, uh, uh, on his high horse thinking that he was going to take care of the situation uh, in a situation that did not require intervention? So I think it behooves us to learn when to intervene, but it also behooves us to look at our own motivations for intervention. Are we really doing this from a sense of public safety? Are we really doing this from a sense of of a greater good? Are we doing this from a sense of what it will do for me? Yes, and that's why we always need to keep in the back of our mind that we might not always be right. But I would say the person that you're describing probably isn't going to come to that conclusion on their own. So it would require other people it would require other people to intervene with them and say, Alan, I think you're overreacting or it seems really important to you to always be seen as doing the right thing. In other words, the person that you're describing right now isn't someone who's really open to being reflective and aware of themselves. So probably it would require another bystander to intervene with them. And any bystander that intervenes needs to have in the back of their mind the possibility that that their intervention might not actually be warranted, but they're still going to do it because it seems warranted. And in a violent situation, the question isn't there. You know, if someone's in yes. danger of harm, that's a different scenario. Well, and I think that that's, you know, clearly something that, that we have to look at as well. You know, I mean, uh, at what point do you risk yourself for someone else, I mean, if you have obligations with children or whatever, then you certainly wouldn't do that. If you don't, you might. I don't know. I mean, it all comes down to understanding ourselves, understanding our motives, and then looking toward a greater good, I would think. Yes, so um, maybe um, you can you can teach us that in one of your next shows. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll call you back for that one. <laughs> no, but that's I see true. A book. I see a book. <laughs> Alan, I've had a really, I've enjoyed our discussion. I really have, well, and I hope you have as well. And, and we hope the uh, listeners thank have, you. right? Pardon? We hope that the listeners have as well. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And next week we're going, I have to grab my calendar real quick. Uh, oh, we're doing, oh, I think it's a fascinating show next week, Alan. We're talking with an Egyptologist and a sociologist talking about women in ancient Egypt and how that is similar or different to how we are today as women. Don't you think that's fascinating? That's fascinating, and if you'll permit me to put another two cents into the mix. When you mention Egypt, um, in our current reality, Islamophobia is a huge social problem, and that is another place that we have the opportunity to intervene as bystanders. And those of us who try and understand a little bit about different religions can notice the event when those religions are being misrepresented. So even that isn't the topic of your show. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. I end our show with a quote. Today it is from the National Technical Science Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that happen. Thank you for joining us on Two Ways. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.